Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to Citizens. My name is CJ. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're super glad to, to have you with us. This morning, we're closing out a series that we've been in in the life of Joseph from the Old Testament. I wish we had more time. We only did four weeks on the life of Joseph. I encourage you to read the whole story on your own. It's an amazing, beautiful story. Uh, it's a story of a dysfunctional family. Uh, there's brothers who murder a whole town that, that just got circumcised. That's uh, kind of crazy. And then there's dreams and betrayal, an unlikely rise to success, followed by more betrayal, another rise to power, and then ultimately grace, forgiveness, and redemption. It's, a, it's an amazing story. And Joseph makes a statement in Genesis 46 that sums up the main message of his whole life. He says to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Think of how rare and profound a response that is. When do we ever hear people talk like that? In that moment, Joseph makes a choice between revenge and redemption. To redeem means to pay the cost for. Hey, Joseph pays the cost for his brother's wickedness so they don't have to. And I was thinking this week, if I'm hearing Joseph's story for the first time, reading it for the first time, and I'm hearing all about what's going on. And then we get to that point in the story where Joseph becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man, right? The ruler over all Egypt. I'd be thinking to myself, oh, this story is going to end in revenge, right? Because revenge is sweet. Okay, there's a reason why movies like The Avengers are so popular. Okay. I don't know about you, but I hate injustice. But what I tend to love more than justice is revenge. The sweet taste of revenge. Um, Keen and I play a video game together called Fortnite. I don't know if you ever played it, played this game. Uh, Shepard plays it, I play it with them. And in Fortnite, it's a first person shooter game, okay? And when you shoot somebody and kill them, um, they, their screen changes from watching themselves to watching you. So then they're watching you after, after you've killed them. And then it has this thing where you can dance, you can do a dance on their grave after you kill them. Okay. It's sort of a way to like, let them know like, Hey, I just shot you. And then I'm going to do this little dance. And it's like this little dagger in their side. Okay. It's really satisfying unless it happens to you. Okay. Unless it happens to you. All the moms are like, no, that's not satisfying. Leah's like, don't tell my kids. <laughs> Hopefully none of us are dancing on anyone's graves. Okay. But we, we sort of like when somebody that's our enemy or who's hurt us fails, we celebrate it a little bit, don't we? Or we fantasize about the downfall of those who have harmed us. And we kind of love this idea of there being a shift in power at some point, right? Like there is in Joseph's story. Why do we often choose revenge over redemption? Um, I think in part, hey baby, we don't 
believe, like Joseph did, that God intends all things for good. Um, We don't think he's in control of our circumstances. And if he's not, or since he's not taking control, then I got to take control into my own hands. Okay, Joseph made a choice to trust God in the midst of his circumstances and attribute all that's happening to him to God's providence in his life. Okay, and last week we learned that God's presence was Joseph's greatest treasure. It was the one thing that no one could take from him. And because of that, he didn't need anything else, including revenge. So I think what Joseph would say to us this morning is that revenge never tastes as sweet as redemption. It's sweet, but it doesn't taste as sweet as redemption. Joseph spent his life drinking from the sweet cup of redemption rather than the bitter cup of revenge. I love margaritas, okay? I make my margaritas with like fresh squeezed lime, homemade honey syrup, a little bit of freshly squeezed orange, some ancho reyes chili liqueur, and a good bottle of tequila or mezcal. If I come to your house and you give me a margarita made with store-bought Margaritaville cough syrup premix, okay, I will pour it out when you're not looking. (laughs) All right? Because my palate is trained to love the real thing. Revenge tastes like Margaritaville cough syrup garbage compared to redemption. You'll probably remember nothing from the whole Joseph series except my margarita illustration, but I don't care. Just wait until I serve you a really good margarita, Rob, okay? And then you'll know what I'm talking about. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to jump in, okay? God, we can all uh, probably pretty quickly think of someone we love to get some sweet revenge on. And we think it would taste sweet. And it probably would for a little while. But then it always turns sour. And so we repent of our attitudes towards those who have harmed us. Jesus, remind us this morning that you had every right to seek revenge on us and you didn't. You are the God of grace, the God of mercy, the God of forgiveness. All of us are recipients of those gifts. And so we praise you this morning. I ask God that you would do a work in us this morning as we close out um, our study in Joseph. I pray you would make him an example to us. Um, But more importantly than that, that you would use his story to point us to you. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, We're skipping over a lot of Joseph's story today. Again, there's there's not time to cover it all, but I'm going to try and just catch us up as much as we possibly can. Remember last week when we left Joseph, 
he had risen to prominence in Potiphar's house. He was Potiphar's slave. Um, and he goes from like janitor to receptionist to personal assistant to CEO. Uh, but then Potiphar's wife targets him and she tries to seduce him and then ultimately leverages her position of power to try and force herself sexually on Joseph. Joseph is faithful to Potiphar, refusing to sleep with her, but then his faithfulness is re uh, rewarded with injustice, right? Um, Potiphar's wife accuses him of rape and then Joseph ends up in jail. We learn that God is still with Joseph. He rises again to prominence in the same way he did in Potiphar's house in the prison. And then when he's in jail, God cultivates this gift of dream interpretation that Joseph has. Remember that he had those dreams when he's younger, but now we learn that he actually has the ability to interpret dreams because um, two of Pharaoh's uh, workers come to jail, his cupbearer and his baker. And they have dreams and can't understand them. So Joseph interprets their dreams for them. And when he does that, he asks the cupbearer, will you remember me when you get out of prison so that I can be released? He talks about the injustice. The cupbearer forgets completely about Joseph. But then two years later, Pharaoh has a dream that he can't interpret. And the cupbearer is like, I know a guy that can do this. And so um, Joseph comes out of jail to help Pharaoh. Joseph reveals to Pharaoh that the dream he's having is about a seven-year famine that's coming that's going to impact Egypt and all the countries surrounding it. So Joseph devises a plan to store grain beforehand so that Egypt will have enough when the famine comes and then also enough to sell to their neighbors. Okay, and this all happens just like Joseph says it will. And so he ends up saving Egypt and several others because of it. As a result, Pharaoh makes Joseph the number two guy in Egypt. Okay, second only to himself. In Genesis 41, 38, and Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? So again, you have this person in position of power who's recognizing the presence of God in Joseph. Okay, and this, this rise to power is as high as it gets for Joseph. And I was thinking about this this week. If it were me and I became the number two, I, I'm in jail, I become the number two guy in Egypt, the first thing I would do is visit Potiphar's house and have a little chat with Potiphar and his wife, right? Um, and I realized, okay, I still really like Margaritaville better than I like good margaritas because I would totally show up and be like, hey guys, yeah, me again, the guy you sent to jail. Um, I'm not a good person. So what's happening is people are traveling from all over the place to buy grain from Egypt. And then one day, 10 brothers from Goshen show up. Guess who it is, okay? Joseph's brothers. All 10 of them, or 10 of them, all except his youngest brother, Benjamin. Remember that Benjamin was also um, the son of Rachel, who was Jacob's favorite wife. Um, and therefore, Benjamin and Joseph were Jacob's favorite sons. Jacob thinks that Joseph is dead. And so who is the new favorite? Benjamin. Genesis 42, 6 through 9. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. 
They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And look at this. Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Heck yeah, he did. It's like, the dream's coming true, baby. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. So this actually kind of reads a little bit like Joseph has some bitterness and might want to seek revenge on his brothers. But what we're going to learn over the course of the next few chapters is that Joseph actually has tremendous compassion and forgiveness towards them. Um, but there's, there's sort of two main agendas that he has. First, more than anything, he wants to be reunited with Jacob and Benjamin. Okay, so he's, he's probably in some ways glad these brothers are here, but he's like, these aren't the two I want to see, right? Think about his life. Jacob and Benjamin are literally the only two people left on the earth that he believes truly love him, truly want him. Okay, he can't trust these brothers. He's in Egypt. He's not living like a truly free life, right? Yes, he's risen to prominence, but he's still a slave, right? He doesn't have deep, meaningful relationships. So he wants to be reunited with them. But then secondly, he wants to know if the brothers have changed. Okay. Remember that he had two dreams. He had a dream of his brother surrounding him. Um, then he has a dream of his whole family, including his parents. And we know that Joseph has grown in his ability to interpret those dreams. And so he's looking at the scene and he's like, I don't want the dream, the fulfillment of this dream to be my brothers cowering in fear around me. Right, because fear, people being around him in fear, doesn't create love, it doesn't create intimacy. Right? His desire for them to fear him would be a revenge story. It's like I don't want these dreams to be about revenge. I want them to be about redemption. Now, Joseph is wise not to trust them. His trust for them has nothing to do with his forgiveness for them. Okay? Just because he doesn't trust them doesn't mean he doesn't forgive them. And I think that's an important distinction even for us. God calls us to forgive those who have harmed us, but he doesn't command us to trust them. Boundaries are very necessary when you're in an abusive relationship. In fact, if you don't have boundaries with those who are harmful and abusive, you cannot love them and forgive them as God intends you to. The conflation of forgiveness and trust in the church has been one of the key factors in perpetuating systems of abuse in the church. And so there's wisdom here. We can forgive and have compassion, but also Joseph is like, hey, There's a boundary here that needs to be tested out before I sort of open my heart back up to these men. Joseph wants to safely, he wants to reconnect with Jacob and Benjamin, but he doesn't want these violent, historically violent men to to cause anyone any further harm or to intervene in any way. So what he does is devises a plan with a series of tests. Test one, 
he makes them leave Simeon, one of their brothers, there in jail while they go back to get Benjamin. He's like, hey, this guy's to stay. You got to go back and get Benjamin. When he tells them that, they start speaking to each other in Hebrew in front of him, thinking that he doesn't understand what they're saying. Okay, they say to each other in Genesis 42, 21, this is what they're saying to each other. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Okay, they're feeling the weight of this. And Reuben answered them, and Reuben's the oldest, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? This is 20 years later, and they're like, oh my gosh, having this conversation. How many times have they had this conversation, right? And now Reuben's like, see, exactly what I said. You did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Joseph is witnessing their recognition that they deserve what is happening because of what they did to him. And he goes behind closed doors and weeps over it. He weeps. At any sign of contrition in these men. Test one, passed. Maybe I can trust them. Maybe they have changed. Maybe I can let my guard down and love them freely. See, all that time in jail, Joseph wasn't imagining and plotting a revenge story. He was imagining these kind of moments where maybe they would repent and they could be made whole again. He gives them a second test, test two. They buy the grain, he gives them the grain they paid for, but then he, get, he puts their money they paid back in their sacks so that when they get home, they realize, oh my goodness, we got this grain for free. Okay, remember when Judah suggested they make some money selling him to slave traders instead of killing him, saying, you know what? We might as well make some money off of this situation rather than killing him, let's, get, let's profit. What will Judah do? Joseph wonders. Okay, and then test three is he tells them, don't come back unless you have Benjamin with you. Okay, the brothers go home and Jacob like freaks out when the brother's like, hey, we got to take Benjamin with us. Okay. He's like, heck no, dude. I'm not sending my other favorite son with you guys. So what happens is both Reuben and Judah step up and tell Jacob that they will trade their own lives for Benjamin's if it comes to that. We read what Reuben says in 42, uh, verse 37. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. And then Judah says in 43, 8 and 9, And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. This is kind of crazy, right? Like, are these the same brothers who resented their father, hated their brother? Why don't they have the same contempt towards Benjamin that they had towards Joseph? You would think that they would. You know that Jacob's favoritism just transferred over to Benjamin. Maybe he had his own coat. 
I think it's so important for us to realize that the story of Joseph is not just a story about a really great guy who forgives his brothers. This is a story about God redeeming the worst kinds of people. I think we've given up on people as a society. Our culture is becoming increasingly merciless in its retribution toward those who do wrong. Brothers and sisters, we believe in a God who says no human being made in his image is beyond redemption. Our hope for people must match God's hope for them. I struggle with this. I can be very cynical. I can be very judgmental, very self-righteous. I can easily forget how hopeless I was when Jesus rescued and redeemed me. Is there somebody in your life that you've lost hope for? Maybe it's like a politician or a leader somewhere out there. It could be like a boss or a neighbor or an acquaintance or a friend. It could be a spouse, a loved one, a child, a parent. Maybe it's you. Maybe you've lost hope in yourself. And there's hope for all those people, including you. Jacob gives in. He says, okay, you can take Benjamin. So the brothers come back and they bring all the money back to Joseph that he had put in their sacks. Test two, passed. Then they present Benjamin to him. Test three, passed. Okay, Joseph's like, okay, the dream is coming true. Let's pick it up in verse 20, 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present they had with him and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Think about 20 years of, of seeing no one who you know deeply loves you, and there's Benjamin. I would think a part of Joseph is like, man, I just want to end the charade here, right? Like, let's just, let's just call it. Let me just tell him who I am. I think these guys have changed. I, I think I can offer them the grace and mercy and forgiveness that I want to give them. But there's like one more thing he needs to know. He needs to know what their relationship to Benjamin is. How far will they go to sacrifice for him? So test four, when they leave... Joseph has his servants place his cup in Benjamin's sack. Then he sends out riders to meet them, and they accuse Benjamin of stealing. Genesis 44, verse 12. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Okay, this is super bad news. The brothers know 
that their father Jacob's greatest fear is about to come true. Look at how they respond. Then they tore their clothes. People in the ancient world tore their clothes to express deep grief and repentance. We see the tearing of clothes throughout Joseph's story. Notice the juxtaposition here of their actions of their own tearing of their own clothes with what they had done to their brother's robe 20 years earlier. The weight of their actions comes crushing down on them all at once in this moment. Joseph tells them, Benjamin has to stay here and become a slave as punishment for what he's done. So they have some choices here. All right, this is the real moment of testing. What are they going to do? Do they leave Benjamin? Tell Jacob one final lie. He died on the journey. Pharaoh's man killed him. There was nothing we could do. The brothers are looking at each other, wondering what they should do. Reuben, the oldest, even though he made a promise to Jacob, just stands there frozen. And what happens next is, I think, one of the most incredible scenes in the Bible. Judah, the one who would later become the leader of the 12 tribes of Israel, steps courageously into this moment and pleads with Joseph on behalf of Benjamin. Let's pick it up in Genesis 44, 16. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. What's interesting here is this is not an admission of guilt to Joseph about stealing the cup, right? Because they didn't steal the cup. But instead, he's repenting to God for a lifetime of sin. He says, behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. He continues in verse 30. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to, the, to Sheol. He's talking about Jacob here. He's saying, if we don't come back with Benjamin, our dad's going to die. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. So he's like telling Joseph, recounting this whole conversation he has with Jacob to Joseph. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Gordon Wenham, uh, commentator, says about this section, no more moving example of true contrition and repentance is to be found in scripture, unless it be the parable of the prodigal son. Judah is just like pouring his guts out to Joseph in repentance. And there's some really significant things happening that I think are really important and that are being revealed to Joseph. First, hey doggy. See you later. First, Judah understands that God is the one who directs all things. 
Okay, he sees that it is God who has allowed them to experience this hardship as a result of their sin. He's, he's expressing his guilt. He's seeing God's hand. Second, Judah demonstrates deep, true repentance. Okay, he doesn't make any excuses. He doesn't blame anyone else. Okay, he doesn't try to figure out a way to blame. What if a servant, a servant must have put it in the bag or he doesn't try to negotiate or bargain with Joseph in any way. He is utterly ruined. Third, and I think maybe most profoundly, Judah has chosen to accept Jacob for the man that he is. Do you see that? He knows that Jacob loved Rachel the most. He had favorite sons. Yes, he was passive. He was self-centered. But you know what Judah's thinking? I'm no treat either. Right? I can't blame my dad's faults for all my own actions. It's time to grow up. To take responsibility. I need to extend grace to my father, accepting him faults and all. He clearly needs Benjamin more than he needs me. And so I will give my life instead. Judah exchanges his own cup of revenge for the cup of redemption in his relationship with his dad. So let's stop and think about our own story a little bit for a second. The truth is, your mom and dad failed you. And if you're our mom and dad, you're failing your kids. Okay, parents are given the same responsibility that was given to Adam and Eve to perfectly model the motherhood and fatherhood of God. But all of us, I'm a dad and have, da have a dad, all of us have fallen short of that. We have failed to perfectly model that. And so as kids, at some point, we have to accept our parents for who they are, faults and all. We need to decide in our hearts, they might've meant it for evil or failed to be perfect, but God meant it for good. And this goes with any relationship we have with anyone in a position of power or authority in our lives. The only way to truly heal from the betrayal and harm others have caused us is to give God more power over the, their actions than we give them. Let me say that again. The only way to truly heal from the betrayal and harm others have caused us is to give God more power over their actions in our lives than we give them. It's a transfer of authority. Judah did it. Joseph did it. We are invited to do that. Now, 
Maybe we need to withhold some trust, create some boundaries, but with a heart of compassion and forgiveness towards our parents. So finally, we come to today's passage in Genesis 45, one through nine. And I hope that given all that background, all of the dynamics we see, that we can greater appreciate what happens in this moment with Joseph's response then. It says, so once, once Judah's like, I'm, I'm giving my life for Benjamin's, Joseph's like, I can't do this anymore. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. Everyone out, out of the house. So no one stayed with him when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the, the household of Pharaoh heard it. That's really loud. Okay, the people in, in this house are hearing it. And then I don't know who the Egyptians are, but like neighbors around hear the, the weeping from Joseph. And he said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Ani Yosefe. He would have just said in their Hebrew language. And they're like, what, what is happening? Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. That word means awestruck or dumbfounded. They just, they couldn't believe. Think about all that's happening in their minds that they're putting all this together. How can it be so? And Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. The famine has been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing or harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. Joseph lavishes them with grace and forgiveness over and over. He says, God sent me. God sent me. It wasn't you. It was God. He gave me this position five times. He names God as the one providentially moving behind the scenes to bring about their good. He interprets his dream for them since Jacob failed so badly to do so many years ago. He reveals to them the mind and heart of God to show favor to the, to the one only so that he can bless the many. Notice the power of Joseph's emotion through this whole ordeal with his brothers. He weeps three different times. It's as if there's this giant vat of tears that's built up over his entire lifetime that's just ready to pour out and he doesn't cry for himself. Tears of victimhood and self-loathing. He weeps tears of joy over the transformation of these men and the reconciliation that is now possible through true repentance. And we see in his story that God indeed 
makes dreams of redemption come true. That's what, that's what we should dream about and long for and pray for and weep over. Joseph shows his brothers and us what God's response is to true repentance. True repentance is always responded to by God with unmerited grace. God takes the ugly, wretched, no good reality of our wickedness, our sin, and he says, I will redeem it all. I'll redeem it all at my own cost. It's on me, guys. It's at my expense. Joseph chooses the cup of redemption over the cup of revenge. They're playing uh, life-size throw-throw breeder over there and having so much fun, and I love it. We have our own choice to make between these two. Will we choose revenge or redemption? One glass is from Margaritaville, and Rob loves it. And the other one's made by Andy. And you can get one of those at our anniversary party on August 22nd. Be there. Okay? See what I did there? I saved it to the end. I could have used you in the beginning. Trust me. I know what I'm doing. Revenge will never taste as sweet as redemption. But listen. The choice is not whether to give the cup of redemption to our enemy instead of revenge. That's not the choice. The choice is whether we will receive the cup of redemption from Jesus instead of the cup of revenge that we deserve. See, we desperately want to be Joseph in this story, don't we? I do. But when it comes to our relationship with Jesus, we are not Joseph. We are Jacob, the passive, foolish father. And we are the violent, deceptive, hating brothers. We are Judah. Jesus is standing in power over us. His dream came true when he went to the cross and defeated it, displaying his authority over death. We aren't bowing before Jesus because of a deadly famine, but we are bowing before him in a pandemic of our own sin. We're at his mercy. He has every right to test us. Only we can't pass his test. His test is holiness, perfect righteousness, and all of us have fallen short. But the good news is, like Joseph, Jesus is not interested in being surrounded by people that are afraid of him. He wants to be surrounded by people that love him. 
Jesus takes the cup of death we deserve and drinks it himself until there isn't one drop left. Jesus says there is no sweeter tasting drink in the whole world than the cup of the new covenant. And though we deserve the cup of revenge, he invites us to sit at his table and he serves us the cup of redemption that he made not with his hands, but with his own broken body. He says, you meant evil against me, but I meant it for good. If we can't accept this for ourselves, we'll never be able to give it away to somebody else. There's no better story in the entire world than this. And it's true. And it's our story. Sell all you have and buy this field and spend your life digging in it until you find the buried treasure of Christ's kingdom. Do not delay. Imagine if we were a people, a church, who took this story and made it a script for our lives and acted it out over and over again in our relationship with God and in our relationship with each other. What if we tore our clothes in repentance over our sin, expressing deep sorrow? What if we chose to see God as the ultimate actor in history, guiding all circumstances, even our sins, toward his greater end of human flourishing? What if over and over again we offered freely each other the cup of forgiveness and redemption? What if we passed out redemption margaritas, refusing to taste the bitterness of revenge? What might that do in this city? Like what if people started to hear about these, these people, this church, they're Christians, and that's weird, and I want to judge them, and I want to hate them, and I want to think they're idiots for believing what they do, but man, I hear about this community of people who are loving God and each other in this way that I just can't understand. And I would say, as a church, our moment is now for this. Like as the people in our workplaces and our peers and our neighbors are increasingly experiencing fear and anxiety to say the right thing, to do the right thing, to post the right thing, to make sure they don't do this or don't do that or don't mess that up, okay? The people that are, that are doing good around us, they're not motivated by love. They are motivated by fear. If I do or say the wrong thing, I could lose it all. That's going to be more and more the case. So what if when that happens, there's a community where it's like, hey, we're all the people that are a total joke and a train wreck and deserve to be canceled, but we have the grace and mercy of Christ and therefore extend it to each other. I pray that we would be that kind of place, that we would have that kind of reputation. Let me pray. God, I thank you again for the gift of, of gathering. I uh, thank you that, that we can be together in person. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Many of them have forgiven me for things I've said, for things I've done. I thank you for uh, a community of grace. And God, I pray uh, that we would choose redemption, that we would choose to receive it from you, that we would recognize 
how big the cost was for you to redeem us. And that would produce a kind of gratitude and worship and motivation to forgive and love others. God, we thank you that your grace is free, that we don't need to earn it. God, I pray that you would go with us this morning. Help us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.